there is built into you a strange fascination with islands. TV producers realize this. That's why they direct shows like Lost and Survivor, which nearly has 40 seasons. Movies such as Castaway with Tom Hanks and his little volleyball, Wilson. Uh, Jurassic Park is based on an island. And the best island show in history, some of you millennials may not know much about this, is Gilligan's Island. Just sit right back in your hero tale, a tale of a faithful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. Remember this, ask your grandma about it. The mate was a mighty sailing man, the skipper brave and sure. Five passengers set sail that day for a three-hour tour. Join me on this for a three-hour tour. Rich theology. We sing it around here. Rich theology. It goes on to list the names at the end. Gilligan, the skipper too, a millionaire and his wife, a movie star, the professor, and Marianne. Actually, the fascination with islands is even built into our children. Cartoons realize this. That's why we have the ones like Moana and Ice Age. Popular literature picked up on it with the classics like The Odyssey and Robinson Crusoe. The tourist industry specializes in islands. It's the most visited vacation destinations. The rich still buy houses on islands. Songs about islands always climb the charts. Islands in the Stream by Kenny and Dolly. Kokomo by the Beach Boys. That good rich theology, Margaritaville by Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> Just last week around our dinner table, we answered the question, if you were stranded on a deserted island and could only bring three things, what would you bring? I said a fishing pole, a fire starter, and a Bible. Our kids had some unique answers. One wanted to bring a machete and a gun. I'll let you guess which one that is. One wanted to bring some, some toys and, as he said, his stuffed aminal and some Cheetos. The kid eats like crazy. Sarah wanted to bring the American Express because you should never leave home without it. No one said a volleyball named Wilson. You find out what's important to people by what they take to the island. That's why it used to be a question on job interviews. On Gilligan's Island, the professor took gadgets, the rich couple took clothes and luxuries, each bringing what is valuable to them, even though others see no value in it. Islomania. Islomania is the age-old obsession with islands. As far back as the days of Plato's Atlantis, islands have been the source of fascination and inspiration. In ancient times, a brief description from a lost seaman's encounter with an island was enough to drive people into the sea, risking everything in search of a new world. Those who could afford it, which were usually kings, were sending ships to find a fountain of youth or a stash of gold on an island. Most people are attracted to islands for one of two fantasies. Pleasure or freedom. Pleasure, romance on the beach, paradise at sea, or freedom, finding the ultimate escape from authority. But pleasure and freedom aren't the only things that drive people to the islands. It was the early 1700s when John Leonard Dobear, a potter, and David Nitschman, a carpenter, heard about the island. They were at a church on an ordinary Sunday morning and their pastor was speaking about this place in the West Indies. 
He told about an atheist British slave owner who had over 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa living on an island in the Atlantic, working in sugarcane fields, all of whom would live and die without ever hearing the gospel. The owner had said previously, no gospel preacher will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave, and then that way he can have no possibility of speaking to us about any of this God stuff. I'm through with all of that nonsense. Upon hearing the news, the two young Germans in their 20s were deeply disturbed. The island wrecked them. They had but one candle of life to burn and they would rather burn it out on an island filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. Their plan? Sell themselves into slavery. These men were not setting out on a cushy, short-term mission trip. They left to go, live, and suffer as slaves with no promise of protection. Their family and friends, for the large part, were all against their decision. As the story goes, they packed their bags, went to the docks to board the ship. Their family and friends were all there to say goodbye. The family knew they would never see the two boys again because they freely sold themselves into a lifetime of slavery. The family sobbed on the docks. They knew those boys would be branded with a hot iron on their foreheads the moment they stepped off the ship. Slave. Property of the island. As the ship slipped away and the gap widened, the young men linked arms. Raising their hands, they shouted across the distance, May the lamb that was slain Receive the reward of his suffering. These two men were not the only two men to penetrate an island. We actually have two more in the text. There are at least 11 islands mentioned in the Bible. But only one has an entire book devoted to it. It's the island of Crete. It's the book of Titus. Some of you have vacationed on this Greek island. You've enjoyed your time there. The only thing I would add is... Bring along your pastor and his wife and their kids. And this island didn't hold merely 3,000 people. It held up to a million. Notice the picture behind me. Hopefully all the arrows will help you find it. <laughs> it's an excellent location situated in the middle of the world. Crete is 160 miles long and anywhere from 7 to 35 miles wide. It consisted of many strategic harbors. It was also quite dangerous. It was actually a hub for piracy. Basically a first century Tartuga, a hideout for pirates. Imagine attempting to evangelize an island that consisted of the cast of pirates of the Caribbean. Well, that's what these two men did. They went to the docks with their Bibles, fire starters, and fishing poles to board a ship. Friends and families waved goodbye among tears, thinking they will never see these two again. Two more pirate victims. But I asked the question, what could possibly convince these two to risk their lives in evangelizing the dangerous island? Well, that's simple. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. I'll introduce both men to you in the four verses that we will exegete. One at the beginning and then the other at the end. Because truth is so tightly packed into these verses, we're going to take them slowly. 
And, and as, we're, as we go through, you're going to be thinking, Kyle, are you changing up your, your preaching style? I'm not. We've just been in narratives for a very long time. We were in Luke and then Ruth and then Philemon and then Esther. And you, you, you can't teach those books like you would teach a letter. So we have to teach this letter a little differently. I've looked over the last two and a half years of, of the preaching here and we've been weak in two main areas. First, the pastoral epistles. Secondly, the apocalyptic literature. So we are going to hit Titus for the next seven weeks, and then we will hit, likely, Daniel. So let's find the first missionary in verse 1. Would you follow along as I read at length? Verse 1, Paul... Let's stop. <laughs> I told you I would take it slow. One half of this missionary team is writing to the other half, and apparently he's left the island... The two men experience success among the pirates and, and the civilians. So Paul leaves. And he writes this letter and sends it back by ship. If anyone in the States wrote this letter, you would have to rummage through the pages to find the name at the end. Not so with biblical letters. Whenever you open the letter, you would know immediately who the author was. It's Paul. Paul was a first century follower of Christ. He used to hate Christians, beat Christians, enslave Christians... He was Satan's pirate, but instead of attacking ships, he attacked Christians. Luke says in chapter 9, verse 1, that he was breathing threats and murder against Jesus' followers. He has a taste for the blood of Christians. Calvin calls him a wild and ferocious beast. Luke paints him as more wild animal than human being. One day, Paul thought he was going to Damascus to capture scattered Christians. But in the process, he was captured by Christ himself. One minute on sin's ship, the next minute on a gospel ship. One minute attempting to purge the land of Christians, the next minute attempting to fill the land with Christians. Don't ever underestimate the reach of this lamb. By the time he wrote this letter, Paul was a successful veteran missionary. All the events you read about in Acts, they're past. Paul's first imprisonment, already taken place. You look at Paul now, he has, he has a gray head, receding hairline, receding gum line. Church planning will do it to you, even church planning on an island. We're not sure how long Paul was on the island before he left, but he did leave, which is not a surprise because Paul lived in a hurry. Most people paint his actions on the island as extraordinary, like Indiana Jones looking for the Ark of the Covenant but in reality, he simply focused on the ordinary, proclaiming the gospel to people. Notice as verse 1 continues, Paul, a servant of God. Now this is not unique in this letter. This is probably Paul's favorite self-designation. He's a servant of God. However, that's not exactly what Paul was saying. He said, I'm a, I'm a doulos of God. The Greek word doulos shouldn't be translated servant. It should be translated slave. There's a difference. A servant is hired. A slave is owned. The English translators, past and present, have muddied the word, going all the way back to the KJV, the King Jimmy, and the Geneva Bible that predated it. In each word, doulos is softened. Doulos is mentioned 127 times in the New Testament and the KJV only translates it slave one time. Instead, it always translates it servant. Why? Because the word means servant? No. There are five or six other words for servant in the Greek. 
Paul would have used those if he intended for servant to be used. Paul's referring to himself as a slave. And translators here are playing fast and loose with the word doulos, and, and I think they should stop. The version I used, the ESV, when the committee translated it, they had a massive debate about the word doulos. They decided to translate it servant because, and I quote, the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery that existed in the 19th century America. End quote. So now we know, in other words, they made this decision because it's a stigma. Slavery is a horrible blight on our country's history. We can all agree to that. But my fear is that we lose something in our hesitancy to use the word slaves, especially as Paul does when he says, we are slaves of God. The truth is actually foundational for understanding the gospel. I told you in our Philemon series that the, the NBA no longer calls team owners owners. They, they're no longer an, there's no longer an owner of the Boston Celtics. There's a governor of the Boston Celtics. Michael Jordan, the GOAT, he went to the best college in, um, let's just, I don't want to over-exaggerate, the best college in the world, the University of North Carolina. And uh, he is not the owner of the Charlotte Bobcats. He is the governor. People hate the word owner, so they changed it to governor. And I can understand that. I'm not arguing for the word in the culture. But I will argue for the word biblically. Jesus isn't a governor. He's a master. He's an owner. You do not call yourself a master unless you have a slave. And Jesus consistently throughout the scripture says, I'm a master. His disciples called him master. And Paul is saying in our text, I used to enslave Christians. Now I'm enslaved by Christ. My dead mentor, Charles Spurgeon, who spoke against slavery in many of his sermons. Actually, when, they, when the U.S. publishers would, would print his sermons in the state, they would delete all of his comments that he said against slavery. But he said this, and I quote, The early saints delighted to count themselves as Christ's absolute property, bought by him, owned by him, and wholly at his disposal. Paul even went so far as to rejoice that he had the marks of his master's brand on him as he cries, Let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. So Paul viewed the scars from the whips and the rods and the stones as his master's branding that he belonged to Jesus. And see, we don't like to talk about being slaves of God because we view it as a stumbling block for people coming to Christ. But my pushback is, what if God used that word on purpose as a large obstacle in coming to Christ? If you come to me, you are a slave. God says you don't want to be a slave? You can't come to me. I'm trying to show you that there's an evil slavery and then there's a righteous slavery. You see both in the Moravian story and we see both in this story. And you say, Kyle, I don't, I don't have a category for a righteous slavery. It's okay. I'm here to give you one. Matthew chapter 25 verse 21 says... His master said to him, well done, this is God, well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the pain of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. 
John MacArthur says being a slave might be the best way to describe a Christian. A slave had no rights or will of his own. His will was to fulfill the will of his master. And that's what happens when you become a Christian. You get a new owner. You have no right to complain about overtime or negotiate better wages or better living conditions on the island. We haven't been hired. We have been purchased. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, we have been bought with a price. And that's slave language. And we would prefer to think that we have an option to obey Christ. We, we would rather believe that we can negotiate with him over the terms of his will. That we can protest with what he does with our bodies. That we can fuss at him about our inconveniences. But we have been bought. And if being a slave of God scares you, I know why it does. If being a slave of God scares you, it's because you've only seen wicked masters. And friends, I'm here to introduce you to a good master. God. You'll actually yearn for his mastery. See those two Moravian boys branded on their foreheads working in the sugarcane fields. Now peek into the fields of eternity in Revelation chapter 7 verse 3 and see God branding his slaves as he brands them mine, redeemed, purchased, property of the creator. Revelation 19.2 speaks about God avenging the blood of his slaves. In heaven we will be slaves, forever slaves. See, we want the teaching that says we're going to be kings and queens, and it's there. But are we neglecting the clear teaching that we will also be slaves? Let's continue reading in verse 1. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this is interesting. Seems like he's laying out his resume. Why would Paul go to great length to expound on his resume? Doesn't his unnamed partner already know he's an apostle? Well, yes. He's doing this because he's going to ask his partner to do some things. On the island, that's going to require clout. Apostle, clout. And the word apostle is both technical and general. Technically, it refers to the 12 disciples. It refers to those who saw the resurrected Savior with their own eyes. Uh, Paul saw Christ the day he was converted, so he was like a, a Johnny-come-lately apostle. He had the stamp of the Lord on him. It was necessary for God to establish a band of such a man in order to ensure the writing of the New Testament and to lay the foundations of the church. So that means that the office of an apostle cannot be perpetual. If a man says he is an apostle, you should not listen to his teaching. Now, that's the, the, the specific. Now, let's, let's talk about the general. Generally, the word apostle means sent one a messenger boy or a messenger girl for Jesus Christ. Today, there are, no, there are no apostles with capital A, but there are many apostles with lowercase a. All believers are sent with God's gospel. And notice how Paul gives himself a lofty term, an elevated term, apostle. Slave, that's a title of great humility. Apostle, that's a title of great authority. Verse 1 continues... For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul is telling us at the outset of this letter that he desires to develop and strengthen the faith of God's elect on the island. This is his purpose. He's laboring for the island elect. Now the doctrine of election has caused quite a bit of heartburn in the church. This doctrine has been debated among Christians for centuries. 
So let me dig into this in the next five minutes, answer every question you've ever had, and put the 2,000-year-old debate to rest. God's elect is not merely a New Testament phrase. It's used in the Old Testament as a title for Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, chapter 14, verse 2, 1 Chronicles 16, 13, Psalm 105, 6. I mean, I could go on and on. Elect means chosen by God. Some of your translations actually do not have the word elect in this verse. They have chosen by God. In the Old Testament, Israel is the elect. They are the chosen by God nation. I want to speak to two groups of people here, and I want to, I want to pastor you both well. First, I want to speak to those of you who are scared of the word election. Then I want to speak to those of you who have tattoos about being elect on your body, and you named your first child elect. And then thirdly, I want to let you know where I fall on election. So first, those who are scared of election. I don't want you to fear a Bible word. Election is in the Bible. It's a word that God gave us. It's actually a word to dazzle you and comfort you. How does it dazzle? You are to look at this word and be amazed by the love of God. A love that pursued you. A mercy that chose you. Not because you were good, but because God is gracious. In our home, we actually teach our kids about election. We want them to see it as beautiful. How does it comfort? The doctrine of election means you can't lose your salvation. And by the way, if, if you could lose it, friend, you would. But there's safety with election. Now, a little plea to those of you who, who are a little scared of the word election. Just a little plea. It would be good to avoid saying silly things like, those who believe in election do not believe in evangelism. That belief kills missions. That's certainly not true in this story. Paul went to an island and preached the gospel all the while holding to the doctrine of election. Most of the missionaries you've ever heard about believed in election, and people lie to you, that's why they don't tell you, but John Elliott to the American Indians, David Brainerd to the American Indians, William Carey to India, Robert Moffat, the first missionary to reach the interior of Africa, you should read about him, David Livingston to Africa, Adnarm Judson, Burma. Biblically and historically, it doesn't seem that people believing in election hindered missions at all. If anything, it took missions to new heights. So let's just be careful. Let's also avoid calling names like the frozen chosen, which makes me laugh, but it's just <laughs> it's probably not the best thing to say. All right. Secondly, let me address those of you who tattoo election on your bodies. I mean, you love it. Here's what I'd say to you. This doctrine should produce in you a belief that God builds his local church. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said, If I did not believe in election, I might as well be preaching to horses and cows. You cannot, by your own ingenuity or planning, put one person into the kingdom. So you better pray for power, and you better not depend on your own gifts. While I'm talking to you, let me give a little plea to you. Most of you that have a strong, robust theology of election were actually converted to Christ in churches that didn't believe in it. So don't appear ungrateful to those who first brought the message of the gospel to you. Even theological rivals can learn from one another. George Whitfield, who believed in election, said to John Wesley, who really didn't believe in election, so one who loved it said to one who didn't believe it, and I quote, I love you. 
and honor you for God's sake. And when I come to judgment, I will thank you before men and angels for what you have under God done for my soul. End quote. Here's what I found. Most people don't reject election. They reject your obnoxiousness when you talk about election. <laughs> the, the, doctrine was given, the doctrine was not given to you to win an argument. It was not given to you to appear intellectual. It was given to you to humble you. And if election doesn't drop you on your knees in brokenness, I don't know what doctrine you're actually holding to, but it's not biblical election. Mark Dever says about those who first discover election, they need to be locked up in a cage for three years and then released, and they're going to do the church so much good. <laughs> Friend, I just want to remind you, if people don't parse election the exact same way you do, it doesn't make them heretics. Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is Dan Herbster's dead mentor on this topic, said, and I quote, As long as someone tells me that we are all saved by grace, that God calls all men everywhere to repentance, as long as both are prepared to agree about these things, I say we must not break fellowship. End quote. Thirdly, where I fall on all this. I believe 100% in election. I believe 100% in human responsibility. I believe election does no violence to human responsibility. I see no contradiction between the two. Yesterday we had a terrible storm at our home. It seems like we were the only subdivision that was hit there. Uh, some say it was a tornado, I'm, I'm not sure. But we had all the kids in our room in the middle of the storm. And suddenly, Haddon remembers that he has two stuffed animals, Pikachu and Bunny, across the house in his room. And he said, I am going to save my Pikachu and Bunny. I'm a fireman. I'm going to rescue them. And we said, well, go ahead, big boy. And he ran, and, and we heard him making some karate noises, and then he came back with Pikachu. And we asked him, what happened to Bunny? He said, he died. <laughs> the lightning took him. <laughs> He's gone. And so no matter how hard we tried to convince his little mind that both animals could be saved, both animals could live, he wouldn't accept it. I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like I'm talking to him sometimes when I, when I talk to some of you. Some of you think it's impossible for both election and human responsibility to live. And you can make all the karate noises you want, but they can and do exist, coexist. The Spurge, who was converted 170 years ago on Tuesday or Wednesday of last week, he said, and I quote, God saves men by grace, and if men perish, they perish justly by their own fault. How, says someone, do you reconcile these two doctrines? He continues, my dear brother, I never reconcile two friends. Never. These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they are both in God's word, and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. He continues, how can they be made to agree? I do not know or care to know. I am satisfied to know anything which God chooses to reveal to me, and equally content not to know what he does not reveal. End quote. So let me throw this out there to you. We've never had an issue with this in our church, and... And um, no one's ever left stomping their feet because of it and on, on either end. Let me commend you for that. It shows a lot of spiritual maturity. But I want to tell you about four conversations I've had with people in this church. Conversation number one with a lady. It was around our kitchen table, it was my wife and I and her and her husband. She was sharing about how she came to Christ. She was actually converted while reading the Bible. 
specifically when she read the word election. Now just imagine how precious the doctrine of election is to her. Conversation number two with a couple in our church between the ages of uh, 50 and 60. We're talking about something else. Randomly election came up and she says, I believe in election. God knows who, he will, choo- who will choose him and so he elects them. The husband responded with something. I don't remember it word for word, but, but this was close. If men are chosen by God upon the foresight of faith, they are not so much God's elect as God is their elect. They chose God by faith before God chose them by love. And he said, I think that makes sense, right? She's like, well, let's talk about that. And then they started talking. Then they went home and they tried to figure it all out. Conversation number three with a man in our church who has been studying election and it brings him to tears. Literally, he weeps over it. He doesn't see how God can be good if election is true. That's a real battle. We've had those who define election as as those chosen by God and those who define election through foresight, both coming alongside him and weeping with him, neither trying to persuade him, both walking with him through it. John Piper said, if believing in election as I define it makes you view God as evil, then don't believe it. Now, some of you may have a real problem with that statement, and I'd suggest you email John about that, okay? (laughs) Don't send it to me. Conversation number four, this has been with many couples in our church. A wife who holds strongly to election and a husband who doesn't define it the same. And the reverse, a husband who holds firmly to it and a wife who doesn't define it the same. And guess what? None of them are divorcing. They have healthy marriages. They're going to make it. Now allow me to shift. Some of you here are not Christians. And you've just heard a lot of insider language. You're like, I don't know what in the world I just heard. But other people seem to think it was good. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, here's what I can say with confidence. If you are not a Christian, you are not a Christian because you're refusing to repent and believe. There's no other reason. Don't, don't use that, am I elect, or maybe I'm not elect, psychological mumbo-jumbo with me. You are not a child of God because you are loving your sin more than you're loving God. So I can say to all of you, repent and come to this Christ. Now, let's continue in verse 1. You're probably thinking like, oh my word, are we still in verse 1? <laughs> verse 2, 3, and 4 is a lot quicker, okay? Verse 1, and their knowledge of the truth. So Paul's passionate about the elect, and Paul's passionate about God's truth. And, and churches that say, and I hear it all the time, churches that say, we're just about getting people saved. We keep everything basic. Everything is freshman 101. Well, those churches are being disobedient to Scripture. That's like me saying, I know I'm supposed to provide for my wife and protect my wife. And I'm all about that providing, but not the protecting. Paul was not content with people on the island simply coming to faith. He labored to ensure that they would grow in their faith, grow in the truth. And so I just simply ask you, friend, how are you doing with the truth? Are you able to articulate more about the gospel than you could last year? Do you now have a greater understanding of the character of God than you did three months ago? Are you growing in the truth? We call this the doctrine of sanctification. I I intentionally place spiritual food above your head at times. So you have to climb to eat it. Paul wants the people of the island to grow in truth. Notice as verse 1 continues. Which accords with godliness. 
accords with godliness, probably better translated, leads to godliness. We're not passionate about growing in the knowledge of the truth just so we can become smarter Christians. We're not desiring for people to be amazed by how much Bible knowledge we have. Truth not only brings you to God, but it also brings you to godliness. And, and some of you, I love you, you have the richest, highest, deepest theology, and it should make you the most loving, most kind, most patient person. But instead, you're arrogant, pompous, smug, and use your liberty as a stumbling block to make other Christians fall. You need to work that pristine theology into your heart. Knowing the truth does not eliminate the battle of living the truth. Pristine theology always produces pristine lives. That's what Paul was teaching here. When the beauty of your life matches the beauty of your theology, then friend, that is, that's glory. The point of my preaching is to teach you that truth transforms life. To give you a truth and that truth transform your life. So if you're a non-Christian, come on in here for a moment. Christian truth is itself transformative. It changes the way you speak to your spouse, the way you work your job, how you parent, everything. And so Paul is telling you why truth, why theology, why doctrine, why expository preaching is so important. He's saying your life conforms to your belief. Your theology leads to your, your biography. If, if you want to lead a holy life, you need a deep theology. Now we're in verse 2. In hope of eternal life. So Paul wants people on the island to have hope of eternal life. Now when we use the word hope, we're usually referring to something we're hoping will or won't happen in the future. We say things like, I hope I get the promotion next week. I hope the house sells this month. I hope I make it to the gas station before I run out. I, I hope the tenant, I saw some of you this morning driving in on the side of the road. I hope the Tennessee Titans win today. However, when Paul uses the word hope, it has an entirely different meaning. It's a, it's a different nuance. Notice verse 2. And hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin. See, his, his hope has a different quality about it. It's not a wish dream. It's a settled confidence. It is a future reality based on the promises of God. One author made a humorous analogy. He wrote that promises are like babies. They are easier to make than to deliver. I agree. But what God promises, God delivers. Now ask yourself the question, to whom did God make this promise? Not Moses. Not Abraham. Not Adam. Not any of the patriots. Not to you. Not to me. Not to the church. It was made before the ages began. Paul only used this phrase twice in his letters. It means before the world was or before time began. What existed before time? God. This promise was made between the members of the Trinity. They promised one another. The Father said to the Son and the Son to the Spirit and the Spirit to the Son and the, and the Son to the Father, let's make a promise to each other that eternal life will be a part of the plan of this coming creation. We think that God promised heaven to us as believers, and, and that's true. But before that, God the Father promised it to God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit promised it to God the Father. Now Paul throws in, God never lies. Literally in the Greek, they cannot lie, God. The island of Greek was actually the mythical birthplace of Zeus. 
They used to tell island stories of Zeus's activities, his lying ways. And so this is, this is a bit of a slap in the face to Zeus here. God isn't like Zeus. Zeus never tells the truth. God never lies. Verse 3. And at the proper time manifested in his word. Literally, this is his own word. So if people on the island are going to find the promises, if they're going to find hope, it's only found in one source of monumental truth, his own word, the Bible, the Logos. Now, how did people on the island receive the truth? Glad you asked. Verse 3, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. We're actually still in the same sentence. These verses form a, a single, extremely complex sentence in the Greek. But what Paul is saying is I'm protecting the centrality of preaching. He's saying I, I never allowed interviews or dramas or testimonies to replace what, I, what has been entrusted to me to deliver. Listen, I am an expositor, he says. I stood before the islanders and I delivered God's word. His word doesn't need any help. I, it, it, it doesn't need me to dress it up or paint it up or fluff it up. God delivers his logos. I simply read it, translate it, outline it, explain it, illustrate it, apply it, oh, and, and I get out of the way. He says, I, Paul says, I didn't manipulate the islanders. I didn't try to impress the islanders. I didn't blend in secular leadership tips with being successful because that's prostituting God's word. And now we finally meet the partner, verse 4. It's been difficult for me not to tell you his name, but Paul is one half in verse 4, to Titus, my true child in the common faith. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Titus was a Gentile. Paul led Titus to Christ, and he was, he was a true child spiritually. Notice the phrase common faith, common to Paul the Jew and to Titus the Gentile. The end of verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace is the conventional Greek greeting, peace is the conventional Hebrew greeting. Notice the, the last word of verse 4, Savior. The word Savior only appears 24 times in the New Testament. You probably thought more. Only 24 times in the New Testament. And six of those are in Titus. The question of who is Savior must have been a question on the island. And Paul wants Titus to answer it. Notice verse 3 where it says God our Savior. Then in verse 4, Christ Jesus our Savior. So which is it, Paul? God or Jesus? Both. Although the Father and the Son have different roles, both are engaged in the work of salvation. Again, this is another drive-by on Zeus, who was actually given the title on the island as Savior. So, so ter and in Greek. Now, I want to give you two applications. Each application lasts 10 minutes. I'm just kidding. Each application lasts like a minute and a half. So I don't want you to close up. All right, I know you're like already packing your things up. Uh, don't, because this brings it all together. Application number one. Leave this service like the Moravians and find an unreached island. I could have said, Read, leave this service like Paul and Titus and find an unreached island. The Moravians recognized themselves in debt to the world as trustees of the gospel. So did Paul and Titus. Do you know there are unreached people groups all around the world who have never heard the gospel? I could take you in a helicopter, drop you certain places. You could walk for miles. You could walk for days without ever meeting a Christian ever passing a church, without ever meeting one person who has ever heard the name Jesus Christ. 
They will live and die without ever hearing the gospel unless a John Leonard Dobear or David Nitschman or Paul or Titus says, I'm coming to your island and I'm bringing this gospel. Some of you, you need to leave this church and never come back. Something you will not hear other pastors say. <laughs> you need to leave this church and never come back. Never give another dime. Never attend another Sunday morning service. Never attend a small group. Because you have been captured by the island. And it, it takes you away from this comfortable living to the nations. You say, well, Kyle, look. First Sunday here and I'm just going to shoot straight with you down the street. They give me 10 steps to a better marriage then all I can say lovingly is go. Because the gospel doesn't propel me to self-help. The gospel propels me to the nations. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. Notice this. And all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell in them. God's heart is for every little tiny island to sing his praises. The unreached people groups are listed. We know where they are. We have named them. We know pretty much how many they are. We just don't have people that will go. We don't have people like the Moravians. We don't have people like Paul and Titus that'll pack up and go. Let's pack up and go. Application number two. Leave this service knowing that Jesus went to the only truly deserted island. He went to an uninhabited island. An island that no human has ever stepped foot on. That's what this Christ did. He stepped where no man or angel had ever stepped before. Literally, on the cross, Jesus had the wrath of God poured out on him. You take what's valuable... Whatever is valuable to you, you take it to the islands. My little Haddon brings what's valuable to him, Cheetos. The Moravians brought what was valuable to them, the gospel. Paul brought what's valuable to him, the preached gospel. Jesus Christ brought what was valuable to him, his righteousness. What did he take to the island of wrath? Not three, one. One thing, his righteousness. It's all he needed, and it was sufficient. Sinful slavery drove the Moravians to an island. Righteous slavery drove Paul and Titus to the island. What drove Jesus Christ to the island of wrath? Oh, friend, that's easy. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.